everyone. I'm Louise Rumble and I am so excited to introduce Open House, a fresh, fun and real podcast that explores the amazing impact that therapy and human connection can have on all areas of our lives. This is Open House and everyone is invited. We hope you enjoy. So I guess today's therapy session is really unusual in that usually therapy is a safe space and today we're opening up those therapy doors and letting people in and I'm just wondering how you're feeling about that. The whole thing has just kind of happened so quickly Mm. um, and I definitely feel like deep down I know this is something that I really want to do and I'm so excited to do this with you but Mm. at the same time it's a... scary I'm scared like I feel very vulnerable already and we haven't even started talking about Mm. like the deepest darkest things inside of me Mm. um so yeah it's kind of like mixed I guess but but I know it's gonna be positive yeah (laughs) it must be daunting because actually starting therapy in general is really uh daunting and nerve-wracking you know telling a stranger about those deepest darkest feelings that you might not even want to admit to yourself and not only are you going to be admitting them to yourself to me but also inviting people in Hopefully, you know, because I've already gone through a couple of months now that Mm. this might be maybe a more structured approach to kind of what I'm thinking. But yeah, for everyone Mm. out there listening, I would say my first month easily of therapy was me just like talking at my therapist because I was like, I have so much to tell you. Yeah, yeah. I guess I just want to pick up on that, like wanting things to be structured. And I wonder if that is quite important to you, perhaps having structure as a way of uh, managing anxiety or, you know, um, just feeling in control of your life. Yeah, gosh, I mean, on one end of the spectrum, I'm so carefree. I'll hop on a plane at last minute to go and fly across the world. And so I like to think I'm super chill and I'm super relaxed. Mm. But like, if you look at my behaviour, actually, there's probably a level of control around them. That is something that I'm still working on. And I'd say I'm a complex character that likes structured fluidity, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Well... I think it's interesting, this theme of control, because I guess even in your answer, it sounds a little bit, you know, intellectual. (laughs) You know, it feels like you're you're telling me how you live your life and and what you want to, you know, the person you are. And there's, you know, I'm sensing that control in your answer. Interesting. And I wonder, you know, how able you are just to feel and, you know, just to be and to let go. Is that something that's really difficult for you? I think I'm highly emotional. And I think that probably since my childhood, um, particularly growing up with one parent who was very unemotional. Mm. And that parent being? My father. Mm. Love him dearly. But he would openly admit that because of what he had gone through, you know, emotion wasn't a part of his uh, suitcase of tools, so to mm. speak. Yeah, and it's that's interesting. Like, do I often feel things? I mean, I feel all the time mm. and it probably is part of it is like it's... I feel too much. Mm. Um, the control probably helps me control like the, the soft, gooey emotional roller coaster that happens on the inside and the outside is like the polished or try to be yeah. try to be polished in some regard. Yeah, but I guess what you're describing, if I understand correctly, is that actually, you know, inside is quite a lot of emotion that could overwhelm you. And so you need this kind of veneer or this mask because you don't know what would happen if you fully let those emotions flow through you. Yeah. And, you know, I just wonder whether if you can just sit with those, particularly in therapy, if you can just let those emotions go through, it won't be such a funnel, you know, they won't feel so overwhelming and scary. Interestingly, my most recent relationship was probably the first one where I felt like I could 100% be myself, Mm. no mask. He accepted and embraced that and 
just loved me more for it. Mm. So I would say that it's something that I'm, yeah, getting better at. Mm. But we just live in a society where it's almost like too much because no one else seems to like feel it. That's how I feel anyway. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, I guess you're in this really unique predicament in that you have found love from, you know, all your followers and things by being perfect, by wearing that performative mask. And now you've had another experience through your partner where he loved you without that mask. And I guess part of you maybe through this journey wants to actually let people see the real you. As scary as that is. <laughs> yeah, totally. I feel like I've always tried to be authentic and honest and open with my Instagram, but it's just not possible to let people see like everything that you're going through. Yeah, because I wonder whether you probably thought you were putting your authentic life and now you, yeah. you know, you've had this break from it. You can look back at what you were posting and maybe you're thinking, hmm, was it actually Yeah, me, it was still actually? shiny. Was it shiny? It was still, yeah. It was still shiny. Was I in control of what I was posting? yeah. I think that's part of why, like, I'm nervous. I've been nervous about coming back to social media because it's this version of me is, like, I, I finally feel like I'm finding or I'm scraping away so many layers of what I thought I was. Mm. I'm finding who I am. Mm. And then that's that's really scary to put out there because if you put out your real self and someone doesn't like it, that's hard. Mm. It's just that as I've gone on this journey, I realise there's more vulnerability, I think, to share. Everyone thinks my life is perfect and... Like, really, it's the opposite. <laughs> but I think perfection is something you covet in a way, or at least you used to. Perfectionism and overachieving has just run my life. Mm. What does it mean not to be perfect? It means to be vulnerable. Mm. To say to someone or something, like, this is what I've gone through. Mm. I made these mistakes. Mm. And you have an open forum to judge me mm. and... When you judge me, I have the potential to be a lesser version of myself in your eyes than I could have been if I had pretended to be a different version. Mm. So if I'm less cerebral and I'm more feeling like, yes, it's it's all the things you've lived through, but then having other people, like having the ability to make their own decisions on, on how that sits for them and mm. what they think of you, mm. maybe. Yeah, and let's stay with this because I think for the first time we're starting to connect <laughs> a bit with this. <laughs> emotion so just for a minute just take a breath that's really good okay so what images are coming up for you when you think about not being perfect about people seeing those flaws in you seeing your mistakes honestly I'm getting all kinds of images but they span like the duration of my life when I was younger I did a lot of very high level ballet so from as young as I can remember I was never the best mm. and I was always being judged constantly mm. by the teacher that would walk around the room. Um, and ballet really seeks perfection, doesn't it? <laughs> exactly. And I remember like I quit in the end and I just remember crying to my mum like, I don't want to do it. Like, mm. I don't like it. And it was only when I left that the ballet teacher apparently said like, she's very talented. The only praise that I had received throughout mm. that whole like years of training. Mm. Yeah, I'm feeling that the judgment started early mm. and then... And you know what our experiences in childhood can really like mark us and, and make us who we are so that feeling of being judged and of not being good enough how does it kind of carry on how does it manifest itself now in your adult life uh when i went to university i cheated on my first ever boyfriend mm. um it was you know to this date still 
the biggest regret of my life. The feelings it brings up, like I feel nauseous even talking about it. I feel mm. like I'm going to cry. Mm. It wasn't just what I did to that person who didn't deserve it. You know, my first ever partner, my first ever boyfriend mm. was more that I had just started university and no one knew me and everyone judged me. Mm. It's lived with me to this day, like in so many ways. And I think that it's something that I'm really hoping that therapy will be able to help me mm. unpack. So mm. I would say that, you know, that was around 19. Mm. And it's gone on forever. Judgment around my business, me feeling like it had to be a certain way, me feeling that my body had to look a certain way, me feeling like I had to have a partner and that people were judging me if mm. I didn't. Mm. Just judgment from, from everywhere, everywhere mm. really. But probably mainly from myself. Mm. Yeah. Well, there's a lot we can say yeah, about what you just said. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess it seems really important to just touch on this uh you know when you cheated on your boyfriend um the least favorite thing I literally like have blocked it out for a decade sorry no it's fine I apologize um but yeah so what were those feelings and and how perhaps overwhelming did they feel I mean it was just like beyond anything I've ever felt because Mm. he was present like he my ex-boyfriend walked in and saw Mm. his four-year girlfriend first partner love of his life in that moment and actually I have no memories after the event Mm. whatsoever so I remember the what the f are you doing Mm. and then I remember nothing Mm. I don't remember anything like the next day Mm. I don't remember what I did when I woke up I don't remember who I called I don't remember what I did that night when I went to bed Mm. I don't remember if I tried to call him see him walk to his room you know I I don't remember anything Mm. um so feeling what I felt at the time is hard for me. Here Louise talks about memory loss following her trauma. This is a natural survival skill and defence mechanism that we develop to protect ourselves from pain. Emotionally traumatic events can lead to disassociative amnesia, which helps a person to cope by allowing them to temporarily forget details of the event. Emotional trauma can also lead to post-traumatic stress symptoms, which can manifest themselves in different ways, including flashbacks, intrusive or unwanted thoughts, even nightmares. Without treatment, these repressed memories can resurface at any time with a trigger event, and if they are revisited over and over, the brain continues to experience the trauma anew each time. Perhaps that links into what you were saying earlier about how you do have all these emotions and they are like stored up and, you know, you just put like a plaster on, you put something on to not feel them. And perhaps, you know, when you did cheat on your boyfriend, that was an example of that. Like you must have felt so overwhelmingly shameful and embarrassed and angry at yourself, perhaps. And maybe your way of coping with it was just check out or put a plaster on it and even now it's something that you don't talk about easily yeah you know which is understandable yeah but it's easier just to push it away than let those emotions flow through you and process them yeah definitely I think that it was all of those things like such shame Mm. such anger at myself like I was drunk you silly girl like what you know what were you doing and Mm. sadness because Mm. now I look back I just realize like that's okay like you didn't love him anymore and it's okay you don't have to stay with the first person you're ever with you don't have to stay with that person and Mm. you can say to them like this has been such an amazing journey and I love you for everything we've gone through but now I need to move on Mm. but at the time like no one ever 
taught me that. Like, I yeah. didn't know what to do. So I was stuck in this relationship that was just, like, just so had run its course. But I had not, I didn't have the toolkit to say, like, I love you, but I need to leave this now. Yeah. So I was sad. I'm sad looking back that, like, this happened just because, like, I didn't know how to communicate. Mm. Um, yeah. At this point, I could feel myself skirting over the subject, something I've done many, many times over the years. While seemingly insignificant to many, this situation had a really, really severe impact on my life. Not only was I later diagnosed with PTSD-type symptoms in the form of awful nightmares that are still present sometimes a decade later, it also impacted how sensitive I now am to criticism and the judgment of those around me. Interestingly, it's also impacted the way that I connect with members of the opposite sex and how my relationships with men have developed thereafter. Looking back, this experience was also the start of my chronic pain journey, with my body pain starting just a few weeks later. So for me, with what I know now, I wish I had not brushed the issue under the rug, just hoping that it would disappear. Instead, I think that processing it properly would have helped the lasting impact it's had on my physical and mental health. And I hope that for some people, that also might be a takeaway from this episode. I decided to tell Dr. Helen a little bit more about why the situation was potentially more serious for me than it might have initially seemed. The reason that I probably don't talk about it as a traumatic event is because saying that you cheated on your boyfriend really doesn't seem that much of a big deal in the grand scheme of life. But actually, it wasn't only that I, you know, had lost my partner and my companion and hurt him in, in such a visceral and horrible way. It was kind of like the witch hunt that started thereafter. And it was really like, oh, did you hear about that girl that did this? Can, I can't believe she did that. Like, what a slut, what a whore. Um, like really derogatory, defamatory language, which for me, at the point when he was the only person I had ever been with, it felt like it was just so unfair. Like I was being tarnished as this person that I wasn't and mm. that I was just like, yeah, just an awful person. And I just felt like everyone was talking about me and looking at me. And there would be times when I'd go out at night and the rugby team would be like, oh, like there's there's girl that did that. So, yeah, I guess it was just everything and I just felt so unsafe and mm. so judged and victimised and vindicated way disproportionately, I guess, maybe to what I'd done. But at the time, it felt like I deserved it all. Mm. It felt like I was that awful person. And I think really like I believed it. And I think that was the start of a lot of problems for me. Yeah. So it sounds like you started to internalise all the criticism that people were saying and believing it. And perhaps if you hadn't have been brand new at university, you would have had girlfriends to confide in and they would have said, you know what, this stuff happens. And to be fair, it's just that you got caught. <laughs> um, you know, different people will have been able to soften the blow. It's also really important to remember that at sort of 19 when this happened, your brain actually wasn't fully developed. So our brains only fully develop when we're 25 and the prefrontal cortex, which is the rational part of our brain, that is the last part to develop. So you would have had to have found, you know, relatively immature ways of coping with this trauma perhaps now that you're a little bit older you may have handled that situation a bit better a bit differently that's really interesting about the brain my coping mechanisms were really bad I just went and did what any university student would do which is like go out five nights a week yeah. in turn that actually just made everything more stressful and I felt like a pressure to be with the person that I cheated on my partner with almost to justify why I'd made that decision. Yeah. 
Welcome to another round of Boardroom or Miro Board. Today we talk retrospectives with Agile coach Maria. Let's go. First question. You've spent two hours in a team retro, but the only input you've heard is Dave's. Boardroom or Miro Board? Boardroom. In Miro, Dave can't hog the space because everyone can add thoughts anonymously, online at the same time. Correct. Next. You need the team to act on feedback fast. So you turn all those retro notes into Jira tasks instantly. Miro all the way. And I can assign those tasks to teammates. You're nailing this. Now, you see hundreds of sticky notes from the retro. A real mess. But you organize them into five themes in just seconds. Miro, I basically get back an entire hour when I use its AI tools for clustering. And she's done it. Join over 60 million people running actually enjoyable and actionable retros in Miro. Get your first three boards free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com. I just, it was just bad coping mechanisms. Mm. I just didn't have the rational coping mechanisms in place that a decade later I would have now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So your coping mechanisms were to go out, party, drink. Were you also maybe seeking comfort from other boys or anything like that? Honestly, looking back, I was just all over the place. And I think I just was trying to stay afloat. And Mm. I was just making bad decision after bad decision. Mm. But I think what made it worse is that I wasn't talking to anyone about it. Mm. I wasn't saying like, oh, my goodness, I think I'm making bad decisions here or I just don't know what to do. I'm trying to make things better and I keep making them worse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. From what I remember, there was just no discussion around anything. So I guess just to summarise what's happened is that you experienced this trauma and you hurt somebody very badly and then people started criticising you, calling you a whore and everything. And so rather than kind of fight that or find a healthy alternative perspective you perhaps on some level internalize that and then to seek comfort you didn't have any friends so perhaps you sought comfort from boys and from drinking but that then further exacerbated this idea that maybe you you were promiscuous promiscuous yeah and I don't believe that you were but it probably gave people a little bit of fuel to say that you were, which further meant that you internalised that idea of being promiscuous and not good enough and those things. Yeah. Listening back to this session, I feel like Dr. Helen has got it spot on here. With the coping mechanisms that I put in place after this traumatic experience, I definitely got the wild child label at university. And being part of the cool crew just enabled these coping mechanisms further. There were lots and lots of drinking, partying, smoking and drug taking. And in hindsight, I just blocked everything out. Looking back now, I almost want to cry for that little version of me who was internalising all of the things that everyone was saying about her. I would definitely say that this was the start of me feeling quite misunderstood. And my outward persona, being confident and extroverted, definitely didn't align with my inner one that was much more soft, sensitive, caring and introverted. Interestingly, however, as I left university, this started to swing back the other way. And so I thought I'd tell Dr. Helen a little more about this too. It then got to a point where I went the total opposite. Mm -hmm. So for the majority of my 20s after university, I was so boundaried in relation to men. So it's almost like I swung back the other way trying to repair that. And I just didn't want to be tarnished with that brush anymore. So I think I almost went from one extreme right back through to the other where... I remember one of my boyfriends, like I didn't even sleep with him until he was my boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And that in today's society is just unheard of. (laughs) Um, It's been very difficult to get access to me. 
I need to get to know you. We have to spend a lot of time together. And I feel quite happy with that approach because it means that I don't let people in that are just after my body or whatever. And I really do develop more deep mental and physical connections. So I'm quite happy with the way that it's turned out. But I'm also aware that there's probably a bit too much of a control around that still. Yeah. So it sounds like you've gone from one end of the spectrum to the other and now seek a little bit too much control. Do you think that that comes from a fear of judgment? Yeah, I would say so. Um, Yeah, I would say that that's exactly it. And I have been so hurt by Mm. what happened at university and I never want to be tarnished or viewed like that again. So that makes sense from an evolutionary perspective, because when we were cavemen and women, if we misbehaved or were out of line, we were exiled from the group. And without group support, we would often die. And so although this isn't the case anymore, we still have this intrinsic need to feel belonged, to feel accepted. And so perhaps that's why it's so powerful for you, this need to be judged positively, to be accepted by the group. The thought of being rejected from that group at university was just too painful. So it was like anything I could do to to fit in. And that's where the drinking and the partying came in, because that's what all my new friends were doing. I probably should have spent a couple of weeks or months, you know, working through what had happened and, and then going out and meeting people. But I wanted to be a part of it and I didn't want to be abandoned from the group. So that makes total sense. Yeah. I guess I want us to think about kind of these transitions that have happened in your life so you've kind of had this one relationship where maybe it was a bit perfect and then all of a sudden it was terrible and now you in your sort of more recent relationship it's um a lot more communication and you're trying to be different um I feel that there are some parallels with your social media as well in that maybe it was also quite perfect and everything And from what I understand, you've had this almost like a breakup from it. And now you're trying to establish a new relationship with social media and and kind of who you are, because social media was probably part of who you are as well. Yeah. So talk me through that experience of social media, but from like a a feeling level, not like a cognitive level. Okay, I'm going to close my eyes because when I close my eyes, I can feel. Yeah, that's good. (laughs) Um, So my experience with with social media has predominantly always been like nice it feels good it's just been a good experience like nice people messaging me connecting with people talking about real things Mm. when I suffer like when I see myself suffering offline that's where the dichotomy comes like the chasm between like the offline me and the online me Mm. and what I felt is like as I'm on this journey I almost couldn't document it online yeah like I had to deal with it in private Mm. so I came off social media and then now I feel like I'm ready or I'm gonna come back but it makes me feel anxious like Mm. I want to be real I Mm. want it to be real Mm. every time I go on social media I'm just like I look at everything and I'm like this isn't real this isn't real like you guys everyone's perpetuating a life that isn't real Mm. and then we wonder why when we put our phones down we feel shit but you're stuck then aren't you because you know this childhood part of you needs things to be perfect so that you can't be judged negatively but now you're like oh well if I don't post warts and all then it's not me so you need to sort of redefine yourself and your relationship with social media and that must be quite daunting 
yeah, you've got it totally and it comes back again to the different ends of the spectrum thing. I want it to be perfect and great and I want people to enjoy, like, engaging with me. Yeah. But then on the other end, like, it has to be real. So it's definitely two ends of the spectrum. Mm. Um, Well, I guess the main point is, you know, who are you? You've been actually through a lot and I think we're going to come to that as the weeks go on (laughs) but I think the experiences you've gone through have actually fundamentally changed you as a person yeah massively and now whilst you are in this period of you know changing and growing you're actually letting everybody in yeah (laughs) yeah that sort of prime judgment territory yeah yeah so when you put it like that I'm like oh my god Louise are you actually crazy like what are you doing this is like actually not good for your mental health (laughs) um but yeah I just I just trust that this is going to be a safe space and that what we share here you know Mm. hopefully will will maybe help me move past that judgment Mm. by Mm. being able to share my authentic and and true self Mm. I am imperfect Mm. judge me judge me and I'm okay with it because Mm. for the first time ever I feel like I know that I'm a good person I know I'm a kind person like I know deep down I know I might not be the prettiest person out there or the skinniest person out there or all those silly metrics that you know when we're younger we judge ourselves on Mm. I know like I'm I'm good like Mm. I'm okay I like I like who I am and like if you don't like me then that's okay Mm. That is so empowering. Like, it makes you sound bulletproof, you know? Criticise me all you like, but you're not going to, like... You're not going to beat me down. But also that I think more importantly is that by recognising, acknowledging your own faults, then I think it will also make you a more compassionate person to others, you know? You can embrace other people for who they are, what's norm, and, you know, what a... Yeah, what a powerful thing to be. That's so interesting. Living by one of my very best friends is going through um, a, a difficult fertility journey, mm. um, and the compassion and love and support that I have been able to give her mm. has helped me, mm. like on my own journey, mm. because I've it feels so good to help her. Like I want to help her, I want to love her, support her, and tell her everything's going to be okay, which I'm doing mm. frequently. And it makes me think that old me just couldn't have done that. Always been kind and compassionate, but I just didn't have the space to just sit mm. and be and then share. I almost feel like I have run and run and run and run and run in life as mm. quick as I can mm. and never stopped to be yeah and that's changing I'd say yeah you're still running yeah (laughs) I can still see you know your energy is fast and and you know you want things done just so and I think part of this journey is actually going to be about slowing down because when we slow down when we connect there's this like really beautiful part of you I think and like if you just slow down to just let it express itself (laughs) you know the warts and the you know pustules and the shame that's all going to come out but also that beauty and that compassion can also like have space to come out which will be beautiful and I guess this point of slowing down and starting therapy links in a bit with just how do you feel about doing therapy because you mentioned before you have actually lived a pretty privileged life you know you it sounds like you weren't you know your parents were together you had financial security I think um so you know do you think are you worried about the judgment that people might have I feel like I was ashamedly always of the position that therapy was for physical abuse sexual abuse grief Mm. big trauma Mm. big trauma terror attacks like accidents Mm. and now I've realized like 
oh my goodness, that is not, that's not, you know, you don't need therapy just in times of crisis. And from the journey I've already gone on, the value it has brought me has been crazy. Mm. And I know one thing I've learned throughout my journey so far is that suffering is not comparative. You can't say that because that person went through that, that your trauma is, is less. And I mean, I'd love to go in an episode about trauma at some point because it's been obviously a huge part of my journey and mm. yeah I've learned not to compare what I've gone through to others mm. and actually I have felt at times like you know is even the therapist that I started with like are, are they judging me because mm. he said once that he's been in you know he deals with schizophrenia and mm. you know big serious mental disorders and I thought to myself God, he's probably thinking that this, like, privileged white girl is sat in his office, like, crying because, you know, of X, Y, and Z. And then I realised that, like, that was my own judgement to myself and we have all gone through things that make us who we are and mm, yeah. I don't think something necessarily has to happen no. to you to go to therapy. It can just be life that happens to yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs> and I think it would take some sort of very exceptional person to go through life completely unscathed by any difficult experience. Um, so I think if people really look at their own life, I'm sure they could find something to talk about. Okay, so this is that's interesting that you say that because over the course of this journey, I now really struggle to connect with people that mm. aren't emotionally aware and available. Mm. And I spent a bit of time talking to a guy, and he just basically said that he didn't know anything. Mm. He just didn't have anything wrong in his life, and he he never really did. And he meant it well, I think, probably yeah. that his level of what he judged or he defined as being a serious like event mm. was different to mine just made me feel a bit shit if I'm honest because yeah. I was like wow like you can't even think of one thing yeah I think there's like a bit of stigma out there in society about even just being open about you know what you feel like you said yeah. at the beginning of this session you were like no you're thinking <laughs> you need to feel yeah and I feel like in that moment he was cerebrally thinking I'm, I'm pretty fine. good. Yeah. I'm good. Not As much I has scan happened. through my life quickly, exactly. it all looks fine. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. And I wonder, though, you know, you, you touched on how if you do let, let those emotions flow through you, they might overwhelm you. Or I guess, you know, does that actually scare you? Does part of you just want to put that plaster on, put that little shield on and move on with your life? Or do you see some benefits actually peeling away that mask and, and all those plasters that you've stuck on? And look at this stuff. Like, what, what do you see as the benefit of it? I think I've always felt like, fuck, people don't want to deal with my shit mm. and my emotions and me crying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm just going to, like, I'll hold it in. And mm. yeah. So that's what stopped you that, like, you, people don't want to deal with it. And anyway, your traumas are pretty small. So why bother? Yeah, that's definitely what I felt. Often when I, do open up people will make a comment or say something that the normal person would probably just like brush off I go home and I sit with it and I'm like oh fuck like did mm. I say too much did I was I too soft like mm. was I too much for them to handle am I being am I overreacting mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. yeah at this point we had a really interesting discussion about how I was often labeled as the emotional one in my family I explained to Dr. Helen that unlike some people who become totally avoidant or disconnected from their emotions I never learned to disconnect from them totally. In fact, often I would have outbursts or tantrums and still to this day, I have quite a hot-headed, fiery temper. We briefly explored that as a child, with my father being unemotional and my mother being highly emotional, it may have confused me in terms of learning how to regulate my own emotions and moods. For me, this was a real light bulb moment and I just thought that this was really interesting as to how my behavior as a child has carried on through adulthood. 
I wonder whether, you know, by going through therapy, perhaps, you know, yes, you are going to go to some of your deepest lows and talk about shame and that, you know, say cheating. But do you think on the upside, you're able to experience things more fully and more authentically? When I feel Mm. the bad, I really feel. Mm. But when I feel the good... I'm creative. I come up with literally like five business ideas before breakfast. (laughs) I want to create, connect. Mm. So, yeah, I think that it does allow me to feel more fully. Mm. um, But sometimes I'm just a little bit jealous of the people that can sit like a little bit more middle of the road. Yeah, the steady eddies. Yeah, (laughs) I'm not a steady eddie. But I am more steady than I've ever been. Mm. Um, Mm. And that feels good to be learning how to be a bit more steady Mm. how to slow down Mm. a bit more how to sit with my feelings Mm. how to communicate them Mm. yeah well that's you know really impressive particularly if your natural disposition is hurricane lulu meets maybe very overwhelming sort of emotion where else do you see these old habits appearing It's really the same with exercise and food and shopping. If I like something or um, I'm excited by it or it feels good, the old me would just let it consume me. And now I have to be very aware of kind of managing that. Mm. And I'll ask you a tricky question now. Why do you feel that these habits keep appearing? Good question. I think that it's just all I've ever known. Even from when I was a child, I remember having to work harder, revise harder, do more, be better. And I guess that that's just gone on forever. And as you become an adult, you obviously have bills to pay and I really want to succeed and I want to help people and make a change. And then I think with the exercise, you know, working in the fitness industry, having all these like amazing chiseled Barbie and Ken people around you, it just pushes you to try harder and lose more weight and be fitter. So I'd say it's just a combination of everything has kind of pushed me there. It always sounds like you pull at a bit of a thread and then before you know it, it's just a a snowball effect and you've just got to keep up with this momentum that you started for yourself. Totally. And the last 10 months or so, I haven't really been working. But as work things have started to pick back up again, I can see the thread pulling and I have found myself being so busy and I messaging my friends saying, sorry, I haven't got back to you. So busy. Um, and I'm running around and I'm voice noting on the tube and I'm literally putting my diary hour by hour and I just realised like I don't want to go back to that version of me but yeah the thread and the snowball seems spot on. What function do you think it serves? (laughs) Um, It makes me feel like I'm being busy and productive and so it feels like I'm travelling towards the bigger goal somewhere in the future of being successful and helping people and it feels like I'm moving Um, But potentially also it distracts me from the things that I should be focusing on on a day-to-day basis, potentially. Yeah, often for people, the busyness of work stops them from connecting to sadness, loneliness, and some of Mm. those more difficult emotions that you might be trying to suppress. Yeah, that resonates definitely, particularly when I was running my business. It was just the perfect distraction from feeling lonely, disconnected, exhausted. And it's almost like the adrenaline of the snowball keeps you going. And now I want to just prioritise a little bit more me time and slowing down. And it's not easy to slow down and to let go of this way of life, particularly when you're really entangled in all of this work. What are the, some of the activities you can do to get perspective and headspace? 
So I think that I try now to carve out a bit of time for me. So I have been booking things like a yoga session or a sound bath. And even though I want to cancel them sometimes because I have to travel across London to get there and I don't have the time, I know that it's important that I prioritise that. And also yesterday, for example, I woke up at 6.30. My alarm wasn't till 8. And my instinct was get up, get a coffee, sit at your desk. And actually what I did was get up, got a coffee, and I went for a walk around um, the common by my house, by around the park, and just listened to some music, listened to a podcast, appreciated nature, looked up, felt the, the air on my skin. And even though inside of me, in my stomach, it was like, come on, let's go, let's go back and work. I almost forced myself, you need this time to just slow before the day starts. I really like that. It's such a practical thing that you can do is just go for a walk, set your intentions for the day, create that headspace. And then actually your productivity for the rest of the day can actually be much better. So I love that idea. Great. So Louise, we're coming towards the end of the session and I want to set you a piece of homework. It's called the life wheel. What we understand is that when all aspects of your life are in balance, we're more likely to feel happy. So I want you to write down eight to ten aspects of your life. So romantic relationships, hobbies, fitness, sleep, whatever aspects you think are important. And then I want you to rate each of these aspects out of ten and create almost a wheel. I'll show you a picture of it. And if you can see that one area is a ten and another area is a two, you really need to focus on that area that isn't doing so well. So off the top of your head, can you think of any areas that you feel are going really great and other areas that maybe need some of your attention? So I think in hindsight, my life wheel would have been really bad in terms of work would have been at a 10, exercise would have been at an eight, and friends, family, time in nature, spirituality, sleep would have been low, like two, three, four. Today, I think it's a bit more balanced, but I can see the work creeping up. And when the work creeps up, I can see the other things going down. Mm. So I think I need to just stay mindful of that. Yeah. And that's why I'd really recommend that you do this exercise because, yes, you're in a great place now, but things can easily slip. And when work starts to spiral out of control, everything else can suffer. So this is good as a one off exercise, but it might be good to just check in with yourself every month and see how you're doing on your life wheel. You can also have a look. So if you're at a five or so in one area, you can think about what do I need to do to get to a six or a seven? So if health and fitness isn't great, you might want to prioritise doing more yoga or eating better. Okay, that sounds great. I'll definitely have a go at that and let you know how it goes. Okay, great. So Louise, I think we're going to wrap up there. I think you've done really well in your first session and I'm looking forward to next week. Oh, thank you. That was an experience. (laughs) See you next week. Bye. Bye. Wow. So... There we go, my first ever live therapy session with Dr. Helen. We didn't know where today's therapy session was going to take us. And I think it's actually really interesting to see that we ended up back at a major traumatic memory for me, particularly one that I've actually never really spoken about. I'm really glad that the session took us there because not only is it going to help me with processing it, but I also feel like this podcast episode can be used as a reminder to you that life-altering events don't always have to be the most serious. Whatever you've gone through, please remember that your experience is valid and no situation is ever too small to pick up at a later date and talk about or process properly with a professional. So for now, I'm going to leave you here, but please do not hesitate to reach out to either of us on social media to let us know if you enjoyed this episode. 
Open House is a space for open and honest communication. And if you felt comfortable sharing with me, I would really like to hear what your biggest regret is in life so far and how you're dealing with processing it too. Perhaps together, we can all learn to forgive ourselves a little bit more. So... This is Open House and everyone is invited. I'm so happy you turned up and I will see you back in the therapy room very, very soon.